I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. It is amazing what Amazon has become. Amazon almost failed many times. Jeff Bezos has got more money than you, unless you're Bernardano. His fortune stands at what we might call a highly respectable 128 billion US dollars, or more than 10 times the annual GDP of Chad. And that's after bunging his wife a quarter of his fortune in a divorce settlement. Expensive things, wives. E-commerce and cloud computing and e-books and voice-activated technology like Alexa. I mean, these are all things that really kind of sprang uh, directly from Bezos himself. Bezos has acquired that money by creating the world's second richest company behind only Walmart, the retail monster Amazon, with its vast, almost endless warehouses and determination to flog you anything in the world. In many years, he'll be seen as one of the founding fathers of the internet generation. Remarkably, it began as an online bookshop run out of a garage in Bellevue near Seattle, Washington State. Bezos describes himself as an entrepreneur, an investor, and, of course, as a commercial astronaut. He reportedly has the loudest laugh in Silicon Valley, and for good reason. How did it all happen for this Danish-American kid born in Albuquerque, New Mexico? And what goes on in that little bald head of his? They don't see boundaries in the way that the rest of us normal humans do. He's going to be right there with like Steve Jobs and the people who really, truly changed the world. The vibe and the energy, it was just electric. Everyone knew that something big and very important was happening here. He is an enormously unpopular public figure. I really believed that he was going to make the everything store. I, I was a believer. We stopped beside the trailer. My grandfather looked at me, and after a bit of silence, he gently and calmly said, Jeff, one day you'll understand that it's harder to be kind than clever. I really loved every single day I was working there, even though it was very stressful and the stakes were extremely high. Amazon, I, I got hired in 2002, and Amazon was not yet profitable, if you can imagine such a day um, existed. It did. And so the first year or so I was there, we were really under scrutiny by our investors, our board of directors. It was it was a relentless environment. In fact, um, if you go to relentless.com, it redirects to Amazon because Jeff bought that domain back when he started Amazon because he wanted to instill that that was a core value. That was something not to be, not to shrink away from, but to lean into this like relentless pace. But it didn't feel aggressive in the negative connotation. It felt like, oh my gosh, we're on a rocket ship and I don't care what job you asked me to do here. I just want to be on it. It felt thrilling to me, especially as a 20-year-old, just I knew from day one I was watching history being made. That was Anne Hyatt, former executive business partner for Jeff Bezos. Anne joined Amazon at just 20 years old after a grueling recruitment process. At her second stage of interviews, she found herself facing some scary Amazon executives. So I was sat down with every senior vice president in the company, 
I couldn't make sense of why on earth they would be wasting SVP time on someone as junior as me. But what I didn't know was I was being considered for a newly opened role in Jeff Bezos's office. And so he wanted them to stress test me. In fact, I didn't know until about six months after I was hired that three of them had been assigned to find my breaking point and to even see if they could make me cry. Not to be mean, <laughs> but because um, it was a really aggressive environment um, and you really had to be able to hack it. You had to let things roll off your back. You had to think really quickly on your feet, handle some challenging personalities or deadlines. And uh, so the stress test was really important. But another three months went by. And then finally, the recruiter called me and she said, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I promise this is this is the last interview. But she didn't tell me it was going to be with Jeff Bezos himself until he sat down. And uh, yeah, it's true. He only asked me two questions. One was a brain teaser. And the second was really about why I wanted to work there. He, he was evaluating, you know, are our missions aligned? Do I have the passion and the grit and the determination to be successful there? And um, yeah, at the end of that, what felt like hours, but I'm sure it wasn't, uh, he hired me on the spot and gave me the desk physically closest to his in the entire company. And I sat there pretty much 18 hours a day for the next three years. Working at a startup sounds idyllic in that you're you're on a mission with friends, but it is an incredibly stressful time. The hours are are very long. Your pager is constantly going off. Uh, you, you essentially are never, you have no downtime whatsoever. It, it just burns right through you. And most of the people uh, who are at Amazon at this time were pretty burned out <laughs> by the <laughs> by uh, the experience. That's Greg Linden, who joined Amazon in 1997, just three years after Bezos had founded the company. Amazon was a startup, and it didn't take long for him to work out how to get on in a company that was growing quickly, with a lot of very stressed employees. I very quickly learned to never try to pull one over on Jeff. He responds very poorly to people who are trying to scam him or not tell him the whole truth. The best thing to do with Jeff, and, and I find with most uh, executives I've interacted with, uh, most CEOs, in, in fact, is to tell them the absolute truth from the beginning, give them all the information, fall on your sword immediately uh, if you did something wrong, and then start talking about how to fix it. Uh, Jeff responded incredibly well to that in all my encounters with him, and he responded incredibly poorly to anyone who did not do that. <laughs> um, it, it is also true, though, that he would... Uh, ride people into the ground and burn people out uh, at very high rates. I, I don't know anyone from those early days uh, at Amazon who didn't suffer from uh, pretty pretty serious burnout. It's very typical with, with uh, tech startups uh, to be burned out. There's more attention to it now than there used to be, but uh, yeah. Former employees say that if you do something wrong, he will... Um, eat you alive. But if you do things right, he'll jump on your back and ride you into the ground. This is all in a manner of speaking. I don't mean literally. Greg Linden was leading the team of computer nerds to develop the data-devouring software that gave Amazon the ability to know more about what you want to buy than you do yourself. But that wasn't his reason for joining the company. He was just a simple geek straight out of university who loved books. This was very, very early days of Amazon. So uh, very few 
people use the internet at this time. Uh, I think it was under 15% of people uh, in the US use the internet and of course much much fewer uh, globally. Amazon was really early. Uh, it was just a bookstore. Uh, I was really attracted to the idea of selling books. Um, for example, if you live in a rural area in the United States, it might require you know a drive of an hour to get to a, a bookstore. And that bookstore that you get to probably only has you know a thousand books available in inventory. But here was Amazon uh, coming online with this gigantic bookstore with a catalog of millions of items. And suddenly you could get any book you wanted, uh, knowledge uh, at your fingertips, uh, and it would just be delivered directly to your door. So I was really attracted to this idea of Earth's biggest bookstore. Uh, the original Amazon logo was a river of books. It, uh, it was a river running through an A. It was this idea that you could get any book you wanted to online. But an even more interesting problem is, what if you don't know about a book? You can't search for something if you don't know it exists. But Amazon had this opportunity to, to say, well, someone else has found a book that you might love. And if we can share that book with you using the recommendation technology that I worked on at Amazon, then we can help you discover something you never knew about and never would have found any other way. It's almost like a friend that uh, tells you about a great book they just read. Uh, Amazon was trying to be that friend. In 2018, Jeff Bezos became the first human to become worth over 100 billion US dollars. He was the acknowledged richest man in the world from 2017 to 2021. When he entered the world, he would later conquer. In 1964, he had a tough start. He was born to a 17-year-old schoolgirl and a 19-year-old impecunious unicyclist who showed little interest in the baby boy. The marriage was over in a couple of years. In the Everything store, I went and I tracked down his biological father, who didn't know that Jeff Bezos was his son. And so there was a little bit of awkwardness around that when I, when it happened back in 2012, 2013, um, you know, that there were some kind of uncomfortable facts about his very early family life that were then revealed that maybe the family wasn't all that comfortable with. That's Brad Stone, author of two books on Bezos and Amazon, The Everything Store and Amazon Unbound. Jeff had been named Jeff Preston Jorgensen after his showman Danish-American father, but when his mother remarried in 1968 to a Cuban immigrant called Miguel or Mike, little Jeff Jorgensen became Jeff Bezos. His biological father essentially left his life. Um, now, uh, that sounds like a, you know, a, a lot of uh, kind of hard luck at the beginning, but um, Bezos' mother's family was very close-knit. Uh, her father worked for the government, worked on, in, in some ways, worked on the space program, and really mentored him at a young age. He would spend summers with his grandfather at uh, his ranch in Texas, and in other respects, a very normal childhood. And he was a very high achiever, the valedictorian of his class, went to Princeton, then went to Wall Street, um, and had uh, you know, a real uh, high-flying trajectory, even in his 20s. The huge potential of internet shopping struck Bezos in 1994, when he was working for a hedge fund called D.E. Shaw. He was a vice president there when the founder, David Shaw, gave him a very special mandate to basically go and look 
for other business models, other areas of business that the that the fund could get into. And and that so Bezos's role was to be a kind of entrepreneur in residence. And he came up, uh, across a bunch of ideas, um, but he also discovered that the internet was growing quite quickly in the early 90s and could be a promising source of new business opportunities. And instead of starting something for his boss, as he had kind of promised to do, he took this idea of starting a store on the internet and went to develop it himself. He had always admired entrepreneurs. He wanted to create his own company. He knew the kind of financial benefit that could come from starting your own company. And so he told David Shaw and then drove across the country and started this idea of an online bookseller. So Bezos was given the job of finding great new business opportunities. But instead of staying at DE Shaw, with the venture he discovered, he left to start it up by himself. Did biographer Brad Stone uncover any hard feelings from his former employer? That's a really interesting question because, you know, David Shaw is a very secretive guy. Um, and when I was reporting the Everything Store, I was very curious about that. Um, David Shaw and Jeff Bezos were very close at one point, now not so much. And I think where I sort of ended up concluding was that there was a little bit of animosity that maybe way back in the, in the 90s, Shaw felt like, uh, you know, Jeff had maybe broken part of a promise that he had made to develop these ideas inside the company. But, you know, now that was 25, 30 years ago. And arguably, Amazon wouldn't have become what it became if it was started inside a, a Wall Street financial firm. I went to my boss and told him I was going to start a company selling books on the Internet. He took me on a long walk in Central Park, listened carefully to me, and finally said, that sounds like a really good idea, but it would be an even better idea for someone who didn't already have a good job. That's the man himself addressing students of Princeton, where he had graduated in engineering with exceptionally high grades. While there, he had also joined the oldest secret society in American academia, Phi Beta Kappa. Formed in 1776, you have to be either very bright or very well connected to be invited to join. Phi Beta Kappa is the pinnacle of America's old boy network, as well as being a forum for debate and rarefied academic discussion. Bezos still values giving his teams the space for blue sky thinking. Once a quarter, Jeff would take one week out to do a thinking retreat, and it would just be at a local hotel something, you know, usually just like 10 minutes from headquarters. And he would just lock himself away in this hotel room for a week. The first couple of days were aimed at getting as bored as possible. It's massively underrated uh, core element of innovation is to allow your brain to just relax. So there he, this is different than how other people do their thinking retreats, but Jeff did it with no books, no TV, no newspapers, no conversations, literally no stimulus of any kind to get as bored as possible. And the only thing he brought with him was a blank Moleskine notebook. So he would spend the first couple of days getting as bored as possible. And then he would fill this notebook with unfiltered ideas, questions, ideas, tweaks on, on current projects. And then, um, I honestly now, 19 years later, see Amazon launching things that were in those notebooks that because, of course, I stole them and read them. I was curious what he'd been doing for a whole week. And there, that's how far in the future he thinks. Um, 
this was around the time they had just launched uh, Super Saver Shipping, and he had just pitched Amazon Prime, which the board thought was insane. They thought that Prime would single-handedly bankrupt the company because, again, it wasn't yet profitable. And they're like, this doesn't make any sense. This, you know, you can't buy a toothbrush and send it in two-day shipping and and make any money that way. But Jeff was really, really convinced. So that was, a, I think, the first thinking retreat I planned for him. And he came back and he had solved it. He He called it doing the math. He did the math and he knew what parts of the equation were known and fixed and what parts he could influence or invent. And that's what he did. That's how he got the board of directors to give him, I think it was only like a six month leash to try it out. And um, we all know how that turned out. It single-handedly changed consumer behavior on the internet to have this membership. He, he called it digging a moat around the customer. Anne Hyatt, former Amazon executive. Bezos likes to run meetings in a very unconventional way. Brad Stone again. Bezos is a is an idiosyncratic leader. He's got some customs that really are unique to him and his company. So the first one is that he is, rejects the use of, of PowerPoint presentations or any kind of slideshows in every meeting. He wants to start out every meeting by reading in, in total group silence a written document. And that is just how he digests information. Um, it's how he believes that he can, you know, best understand people's plans and ideas and then and then kind of critique or correct them. And so every meeting he has, whether it's at Amazon or the Washington Post or Blue Origin, starts with, with this kind of silence as he's pouring over a document that somebody has painstakingly prepared for him. Uh, even when it comes to things like promotions or hirings, you know, he wants to read the arguments for and against before he makes a decision. A lot of the reasons why he said it was so different was because what I learned over time is that Jeff thinks on a time scale that is so different from most human beings. Um, if you're not familiar with, with the project that Jeff is involved with, which is called the Clock of the Long Now, which is a project to build a clock that will run for 10,000 years, which he has funded. This is one of the things you can learn about Jeff that, that is incredibly helpful to learn and that any entrepreneur can actually learn from, which is that most of us think on a timescale that is way too short. Corporate America thinks on timescales of like solving, you know, uh, earnings issues on a quarter to quarter basis or on an annual basis. Very few big things, lasting things can be accomplished when you think in terms of that time scale. You really need to think in a time scale of years and decades to build things that are lasting. Um, and when you change your mindset to this way, it really changes a lot of the decisions you will make along the way about how you manage something and how you approach something. Uh, I can give countless examples of this. You know, one of the simplest ones is how we entered the digital media space and how the first thing we did, well, it took several years for us to do it uh, because we were spending a lot of time preparing to do it, was to go build the Amazon Kindle. The sort of the normal way that people would have done that was to face with the challenges we were was to sort of do a knee jerk me too reaction to get something out the door. But uh, we took a lot of time putting together the right team, looking at a lot of different options, looking at how we could really create value for customers that would be lasting and, and, and put all that information together to come up with and conceive of the Kindle. While Bill Carr loved the way Bezos ran Amazon, there were many who didn't and many who couldn't hack the at times brutal environment. Bezos's management style, particularly in the early years, 
was very tough. I mean, he just had very high standards for executives who didn't meet them, who didn't think broadly enough or big enough, who made factual errors or mathematical mistakes on the the rigorous six-page documents that were presented inside the company, you know, he could he could lose his temper. I have one scene in Amazon Unbound where Bezos finds a math error in a document, tears it in half, and throws it down the table and walks out. I mean, he was an impatient leader, um, perhaps like, you know, Steve Jobs or, or other uh, high flyers, Elon Musk. Maybe it's a little bit of a Silicon Valley indulgence. I, I think it, the leadership style matured a little bit. Like he kind of realized that maybe he had to be a little bit more civil, but he could. He was still known for, you know, bringing, bringing the, the very highest standards and a degree of impatience into every meeting. Anne Hyatt was his executive business partner and sat in on pretty much every meeting Bezos took for years. She thinks his approach was good for all concerned. When he critiques you or doesn't give you any slack, it was to make you your best self. He, I never saw him push someone who wasn't made better by the experience. That's just not really his, his leadership style. His, his leadership style is, yeah, relentless, but it's always in an effort to make you better rather than tear you down. It's not the perfect environment for anyone. I would say you have to be a particular kind of person. Um, but if you're a person who can thrive under that level of scrutiny, gosh, it was like the most fun job I've ever had. I, I, I can't have a boring job now. Like once you've been on that rocket ship, uh, you can't go back. Nothing is fulfilling again. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Jeff Bezos. Disrupt Radio. He told his classmates that he was going to go to space. Not that he wanted to, that he would. You know, Jeff is not in the military and wasn't a fighter pilot, so the other, the only other path was to build the rocket ship himself so that nobody could tell him no, and he did it. He's seen as a ruthless business person. Amazon is a real paradox. Customers love it, ranks very high on all the surveys, and yet there's a reputation for unfair business practices, for stamping out smaller, sympathetic businesses, for being a kind of shark in the ocean of capitalism. He came in and said, hi, I'm Jeff, and like let out this, his famous huge booming laugh. And it literally almost knocked me out of my chair. It was so loud. There's no containing that laugh. And if I would lose him, I would go into the stairwell and listen. And inevitably, within like 30 seconds, I would be like, oh, there he is. <laughs> you could just hear him from anywhere. He had to learn how to be a CEO on the job. What Jeff learned over time is he doesn't have to be a jerk about it. He can do it in a way that's more respectful. And he did figure that out. Regulators and politicians are looking for ways to rein in Amazon. And Bezos, as the head of that, is seen as like, he's still, even though he's not CEO anymore, is in many ways synonymous with the company. I'm Rod Little, and you're listening to Global Disruptors. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. Every single person in the organization was doing things every day that they didn't know how to do. And that gave me permission as this like junior most person in the entire company, this 20 year old who has no idea what she's doing. It gave me permission to do the same, to experiment, be fast, uh, take responsibility, learn, 
pivot and try again. This idea that uh, that try many things, it's almost let a thousand flowers bloom, right? Uh, try many things, uh, see what works, double down on, on the things that work. Uh, the things that don't work, it's fine. You learn something from them. Uh, so the failure was actually good. That's very unusual in CEOs. Most CEOs view failure as just completely bad. Uh, but Jeff actually views failure as good as long as you learn something from the failure. Amazon.com is now a trillion-dollar company with around 1.5 million employees worldwide and revenue in the hundreds of billions of US dollars per year. It did very well in the pandemic, though sales have slowed since people were allowed back in the shops. Of course, Bezos didn't want to predict COVID, but he did seem to be at least one step ahead of the competition. From the very earliest days, you know, Jeff Bezos was considering the, the tax implications of Amazon and how to minimize the tax burden to lower prices for customers and to increase the possibility that Amazon could become a growing profitable concern. Amazon was based in in Washington State, where uh, Seattle's located, because there wasn't a sales tax requirement. So customers from you know more populous states like California and Texas would not need to pay sales tax uh, on their Amazon purchases. Uh, the price would be lower. It was a twenty year price advantage. Brad Stone, avoiding paying tax can come back and bite you. Around the world, the public, politicians and business leaders have criticised Amazon's relatively small tax payments. In the UK, critics argue that they act within the law, but obscure key financial information under the country's out-of-date legislation. But Bezos is just being smart, isn't he? Frugality is one of Amazon's kind of sacrosanct key leadership principles. But look, I mean, Bezos is a student of business. He is a voracious reader. And he understood the history of retail back in in 1994 when he was starting the company. And it's often, you know, pretty simple. It's the companies with the largest selection and the most convenience and the lowest prices tend to win. Well, the Internet would allow you to offer a limitless selection. But the problem was you you were going to have to, you know, ship things through the mail and customers would have to, to pay that cost. So. He was fighting a kind of price battle at every step of the way, and getting out of sales tax or lowering the tax burden was one way to combat the other low-price uh, retailers like Walmart or Costco. There were no like bonuses at the department level. Bill Carr, former Amazon digital vice president, who launched Prime Video and Amazon Music. In a lot of companies, if you're a senior executive, like a motion picture studios who I dealt with, if they got to a certain level of revenue, for their division of the company, and there were many, then they would get a big bonus. But so which meant they didn't care at all what happened to the other divisions of the company. And so sometimes their bonus would be the expense of someone else in the company. And so we didn't have that problem at Amazon. You didn't win. Your competition wasn't tied to your individual performance in a given year or your department's performance in a given year was tied to the company. And so this is another part of the the structure at Amazon that has actually set it up for long-term success. Bill's book, Working Backwards, gets under the skin of Amazon's working practices. They do things differently there. Bill remembers a remarkable meeting chaired by Bezos. I was blown away by some of the things that he said in that meeting. Like, I remember someone raising their hand and saying, Jeff, you know, do you realize how, how hard it is to work here, how hard we're working? And and how difficult it is. 
And I remember him saying things to people like, yep, yeah, this is hard. I never, I never said this was going to be easy. If you want to change the world, that's not going to be easy. So yes, it's going to be hard. Or if people are frustrated with their manager, they're saying, yeah, you may have a bad manager. If you do, you should really let me know or figure out a way to stop working for that bad manager, or you should definitely take initiative. If you think there's something that's right to do, don't bother asking permission of your manager and just go do it. And having come from traditional companies, like I, you know, I couldn't believe that the CEO was saying any of these things. Uh, a lot of these things are more normal now for large, you know, tech CEOs to say and think, but, but, you know, back in those days, conventional business wisdom was you wouldn't, you would never encourage any of these things. Anne Hyatt has seen the growth of the celebrity CEO in Silicon Valley. She has seen the pitfalls and now advises on how to avoid them. Back then, there was no such thing as a celebrity CEO. Nobody cared about you. Back then, companies had spokespeople in public, and now it's this celebrity CEO thing. But something really dangerous happens when you surround yourself with people who tell you all your ideas are good and all your jokes are funny. He really was very careful in surrounding himself with people who would tell him the truth. Everyone who reports to him, myself included, the least important person in the company, um, I was expected to push back. If I heard something and I had a question or I thought something hadn't been considered that should be, I was required to say that out loud, which can be terrifying because sometimes I was wrong or I asked a stupid question and I was told that. But then it just, that kind of leadership, I think, isn't employed enough. There's this terminology we use in Silicon Valley that's called the HIPPO effect. HIPPO stands for the highest individually paid person's opinion. And in most organizations, once the HIPPO has spoken, it, it, that's it. That's the decision. We move on. Off we go. But he never allowed the hippo effect. He would, you know, if everyone started off with a similar viewpoint, he would assign someone in the room to be devil's advocate, including me sometimes, which was terrifying because I didn't know anything. Um, but he actively combated that syndrome where all your ideas are good and all your jokes are funny and you stop innovating because people stop challenging you. So for entrepreneurs now, if I could choose just one quality, it would be that to surround yourself with the highest possible quality people and to yeah, lead with humility and to require all the voices to participate to their fullest. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio. He doesn't like yes men, but then he doesn't like no men either. So what is the culture of Amazon? And how exactly did Bezos create such a monstrously successful business? The characteristic that I think is the most Jeff compared to other CEOs I've met is his curiosity and his interest in experimentation. Greg Linden believes it's his risk taking and a desire to learn from failures. Jeff has no fear of failure at all, as long as people learn from it and build off of it. And these failures can be quite expensive. At one point, Amazon launched an eBay competitor called Amazon Auctions. All the most senior engineers at the company were pulled off. It was a completely secret project inside the company. We built a essentially a clone of eBay in less than three months which is just incredibly fast uh, to build a, a completely functional version of eBay. 
And it was another failure. It was, it was a very expensive failure. People came initially, and then the, the traffic kind of petered off. Then that eventually became something called uh, Z Shops, where merchants could set up stores beside Amazon. And that was a failure. But that eventually became something called Single Detail Page, which is what you see now, where there's used and new titles sold by third parties, not sold by Amazon, on Amazon. And that's been a huge success, very, very profitable. And this idea that uh, failures only matter if you learn nothing from them, and if you don't iterate on them, I think is probably Jeff's defining characteristic. Uh, this love of experimentation, this willingness to try many things and see what works. If you can fail at something, but you know, it's not very costly either because you didn't spend very much time on it or because it's very easy to revert to the previous thing. Um, you should just do it uh, and you should do lots of that uh, and as much of it as possible. Uh, and that's an idea that Jeff pushes constantly. Jeff had just started this seemingly crazy job called The Shadow right before I joined. And Andy Jassy uh, was the original shadow, the first one. So the shadow's job was basically to be at Jeff Bezos' side um, 24-7. So in every meeting, copied on every email, every phone call, every flight, everything. And at first, that's just to get context of what's happening across the organization in general, because all the SVPs, of course, have their heads down in their, their particular swim lanes, and they're just focused on that. And it, what Jeff wanted was to have someone by his side who could be an intellectual aspiring partner with him who could push back on all his favorite ideas, keep him really accountable, learn to think like him, anticipate what he would like, what he would hate, what is he going to ask, what what kind of data are we gathering, what do we need to be inventing, and um, really learn to think like him. And then Andy went on and ran AWS, a multi-billion dollar subsidiary of Amazon, and now is Jeff's successor. Andy Jassy took over from Jeff Bezos as the boss of Amazon in February 2021. Being the CEO of Amazon is a deep responsibility, and it's consuming. When you have a responsibility like that, it's difficult to put attention on anything else, Bezos emailed his employees. Instead, he became the executive chairman. And that way he tried to escape the less exciting management of an established business and dodge some of the flack the company is getting from disgruntled employees over its working practices. There were mechanisms set up inside Amazon to make uh, working in a warehouse kind of short-term transactional employment. I mean, Bezos did not want a tenured, long-term, entitled workforce. I, I, I believe that he saw companies like the, the U.S. automakers and the trouble, the per perpetual challenges that their workers posed, uh, collective bargaining unions, and he believed it made the companies less competitive. You know, the, the global airlines are another example. Um, so he, he, he also perhaps thought that, like, maybe that is the kind of work that it wouldn't serve people well uh, as careers, that you should do a couple years in an Amazon warehouse and then move on. And so there were mechanisms very deliberately set up inside the company uh, that said things like, if you didn't get promoted in a couple of years, you wouldn't see any more raises. The other thing is that life in, in on the shop floor was tough. I mean, it's it's a physical job. The hours are long. There weren't a lot of creature comforts on the shop floor in terms of bathroom breaks and work flexibility. The other thing about e-commerce is that it's very se seasonal and spiky. You know, you might um, 
have a, a relatively quiet couple of weeks. And, th and then during the holidays, it's wartime conditions. Everybody on staff, mandatory overtime, double shifts. And so it has a reputation, I think a well-deserved reputation, as being a challenging place to work. But are there darker working practices at play? Adrian Hahn has studied how Amazon and other large companies use ideas from computer game design to make their employees work harder. It's called gamification. Workers get points or badges, they fight to get top of leaderboards or get given missions to perform. A lot of businesses try and make work more fun. Uh, I'm not sure how successful they are at that, but that's, that's one goal, to make employees happier. And I think another goal, um, which they don't talk about as much, is to make employees more productive. So basically, to get them to work harder and, and faster, really. We know that in Amazon fulfillment centers, some workers have the option to play games that are based on their productivity and their, their work rate in the warehouse. So the way it might work is that um, for every box you pack or every item you store, you get to slowly move your dragon across a virtual landscape. And the faster you work, the faster your dragon flies, and you're competing against other people in your factory and other people around the world. And they're designed, obviously, to encourage people to work harder. They're not designed to make people work slower, right? You could design a game at Amazon that rewarded you for being slower and more methodical, but I don't think that's how they've done it. So it is possible, I think, for people to start out at the company in the job and think, well, this is actually fun and it's unusual and Amazon really care about entertaining us and keeping us happy. And then a few months later, with experience, realizing actually, no, it's a lot more cynical than that. They're not really that concerned about fun. They just want you to work harder. And the game is designed to make you do that. Adrian Hom, author of You've Been Played. Nature provides all the food we eat, the water we drink, and the oxygen we breathe. It gives us life. It is beautiful, but it is also fragile. I was reminded of this in July when I went into space with Blue Origin. I was told that seeing the Earth from space changes the lens through which you view the world. Jeff Bezos speaking at the COP26 World Climate Summit in Glasgow. There's been a lot of speculation about what Jeff Bezos plans to do with his fortune. In 2020, he pledged 10 billion US dollars to fight climate change through his Bezos Earth Fund. He also gives many millions to US homeless and educational charities. His reputation for not using his wealth for good to the same extent as, say, Bill Gates has done is probably unfair, reckons biographer Brad Stone. Jeff Bezos says that he's going to give away his fortune before he, he dies, right? And it, it's now north of $120 billion. Um, he has been less specific um, and perhaps a little bit more longer-term oriented than his ex-wife. You know, McKenzie is giving these no-strings-attached grants to hundreds of charitable organizations around the world and doing it at an unprecedented velocity. And Bezos's philosophy is kind of different. He, you know, he wants to create organizations around his charitable giving and really gauge the impact and kind of manage the contributions. It's almost the opposite approach. 
And so, for example, he pledged $10 billion to climate change, but started an organization called the Bezos Earth Fund and is very much managing the distribution of those funds. What do you do when you've got so much money and so little time to spend it? You try to find a way of living forever, of course. It's been the dream of many a rich man. Bezos is no exception. So, in 2021, he founded Altos Labs, a biotech company that aims to develop, quote, longevity therapeutics. Unlike previous rich guys who just had their heads frozen, hoping to get woken up in a more advanced future, Bezos has employed a Nobel Prize winner and other leading academics in the field of cellular reprogramming. They have three billion US dollars to play with. It remains to be seen how many extra years of life you get for that kind of money. Uh, our job is to build the infrastructure that will enable millions of people to live and work in space to benefit the Earth. If you're going to have millions, first you have to have thousands. Before thousands, you have to have dozens. And if Bezos is not pondering his life expectancy, he's looking up at the stars. Like Richard Branson and Elon Musk, he also has a space exploration company. Blue Origin managed to boldly launch Captain James T. Kirk into space in 2021. And Bezos plans this to be a small step for mankind on our way to colonising the galaxy. Amy Thompson is a space and science writer for The Hill. Blue Origin is going to be launching satellites. They have their own internet service, much like um, OneWeb or Starlink. So they are hoping to capitalize on the space internet um, market, as well as sending people to space. And they are also going to be developing a bigger rocket. So they have one now that I'm sure that you've seen. It's called uh, New Shepard, and it's a suborbital rocket, meaning that um, the payloads, which are usually people or um, scientific experiments, don't actually go to orbit. They sort of, you know, pass the barrier of space and then come back. So Blue Origin really wants to be kind of the company that is doing that, like transporting materials, kind of getting that sort of in-space manufacturing started. They also have aspirations of having their own um, space station. I think right now it's more of they're messing around in big expensive toys, but I think these are the steps that you have to go through before it can be accessible to everyone. Um, Blue Origin hasn't really released any of their price points for their tickets, so I'm pretty sure that they're at least 500,000, um, probably more than that. It's definitely just for the rich. You would not doubt for a moment Jeff Bezos's acute intelligence, ability to think creatively beyond the conventional, and nor would you doubt his drive and determination to make more money than any other human being alive in the cosmos. Bezos also understands that these days there is no reward in deferred gratification. Amazon has succeeded because you realise that when people want something, they want it right now, as fast as possible. They're not prepared to wait. And they want that delivery guaranteed, as close to a certainty as you can get. Amazon has done all that, and its utter ubiquity has also meant its company does not need to charge lower prices in order to be the retailer of choice for so many billion people. Convenience and speed are the keys. Further, he is truly a self-made man. 
So much to admire then. And yet, you look at those vast, soulless warehouses where countless millions work on the very lowest minimum wages, forever exhorted to work harder and faster, and you get the faint whiff of the labour camp. And while Bezos has pulled plenty of money into fashionable liberal causes, and indeed the Democratic Party, his disinclination to pay tax still rankles. In 2019, it was estimated that Amazon paid just $20 million in tax in Australia on earnings of $1 billion. You don't get to be as rich as Jeff by paying your fair share. I'm Rod Little and this is Global Disruptors, a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio Australia. Disrupt Radio, tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. <laughs> Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and, you know, incorporate it. Online and on demand at disrupt.radio